Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13, as we read verses 10 through 17. Hear now the word of God. Then the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. We depend upon our God's spirit in order to hear him, so let's pray together. Oh God, we do battle against our great enemies every day, Lord, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Would you protect us against all of them and their assaults today, that we could sit down to your word in peace, uninterrupted, undistracted, and undisturbed, that we could hear you and respond to you. We ask these things In the name of Jesus Christ, our great Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, There's a teaching theme, I think, today. I didn't really intend it when I was working on this originally, but... You know what, yesterday was very bittersweet for me. Not only did my oldest child graduate from high school, a sentence which makes me feel incredibly old, but I also had to say goodbye, in a sense, to the students of the senior class. That's the only class that I I teach at St. Stephen's. Um, I don't know that I could extend myself much further than than teaching that class, Um, and yet for the last year, I have spent three days a week, a week with these students. And I am also not a sentimental person. I'm really not. Um, But having spent so much time with these students, learning to appreciate them and and care about their souls, I mean, this class was designed around their souls. I I want them to go out into the world, and I want them to face the unbelief around them, and I want them to feel equipped um, the best that we could do. Uh, and yet part of what you do as a teacher is you do your best to teach and then you send them off into the world um, hoping that you were helpful to them but committing them to the Lord. You hand them over to God. You say, God, they are your students. They are yours now. Parents have to do this. Teachers have to do this. 
Um, we as a church have to do this. Some of these students are going to be leaving our number and going to other places. Um, but if you talk to any good, good teacher, one thing you will see is a love for their students and, and a desire for them to grow and understand the subject they're being taught. And this is something that I think all good teachers have in common, right? They want to help their students. They want to help them grasp something maybe they didn't have before. And this is partly why you come to a passage like this today and you just think, Jesus, you are so interesting. Um, because he gives his disciples this insight into what motivates his preaching style. You know, why is he teaching in parables? Why tell that story last week about the soils? Why do it that way? Why not just talk about the different ways that people uh, receive the word of God? Why, why not be, be more direct? Um, and if I might be, be a little bit blunt and then refine it as we go, Jesus gives an answer to his disciples and he says, they're not all supposed to understand. What kind of teacher intentionally teaches in a way that people won't get what he's saying? Well, Jesus is that kind of teacher. You know, one of the, one of the things we'll see this morning is that de- Jesus did not teach in parables to help all of his listeners understand. His goal was not to help them know more things. He used the parables to confront and he aimed at the heart, not the mind. And, and so because of that, he's teaching in parables. And so today, let's understand what Jesus is talking about. Let's use the three-point format. Um, First, we have the concern of the disciples. Second, we have the Lord's motivation. And then third, the Christian's privilege. Now, first, we we begin with the disciples' concern. I want to be very brief about this. Uh, It's something that I notice in the text. It's something that I think is worth commenting on. But I just want you to see it as well as we look at verse 8, right? Jesus' closest followers come to him after this parable that he's just given, and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? They, They seem to understand that he could be more direct, and yet he chooses not to. He's intentionally not as direct as he could be. Um... Really a very simple question. They, they want to know why he teaches like this. What's up with your teaching style, Jesus? Now, a lot of commentators point this out. Um, John Chrysostom points this out. I, I try to drop his name as often as I can. It's just a great, strong name. A good early church father. Calvin points this out as well. Uh, actually, I've got to be honest, almost all the ancient commentators point this out. They point out that the question from the disciples is it comes from a very good place, right? It doesn't come just from raw curiosity, but it comes because the disciples have a gentle disposition toward the crowds. It might be that the disciples think the crowds would do better with more direct teaching. Maybe that's the case. (coughs) But here's what they, they do notice, though. They can see that Jesus cares about the people. He cares how they receive what he says, And they can see Jesus is very thoughtful about how he communicates. And they want to understand that for themselves. They do understand at this point, they've been accompanying Jesus all this time because part of the plan is for them to then take the message of Jesus and teach it as well. So they know they're supposed to be teachers. And they need need to be able to teach. And they need to be able to teach well. And so they're paying attention. They're paying attention because they want this for themselves. This is a question from them that is not self-focused, right? Instead, 
it's a question that is thinking about others and the people they're eventually going to have to communicate with too. It's a question that says, why do you do this? Help us to learn so we can do this well. Now, one thing I'm certain of is that when it comes to the church, none of us are meant to stop growing. None of us are meant to stop improving in whatever it is, is that we do. And, and every Christian should belong to a church. If for no other reason, then you need a place to be able to serve and you need a place to be able to share your gifts. Um, preachers want to improve. We, we want to be helpful to God's people. Um, but this is not just a passage about those who are preaching. Now, the disciples are handling the word of God. They want to be better at handling the word of God. But this goes wider than that, right? There are other ways to teach. There are other ways to serve in the church besides preaching, right? If you teach Sunday school, um, you can always grow as a teacher. You, know, you learn from others who teach, and, and you hope that you can get better at that too. That's what the disciples seem to be doing here. Um, but, there's, but there are other things in the church that we can improve in as well. Showing mercy to others. If we notice a deficiency in the way that we instinctively show mercy to other people, we should look for merciful people and ask them, how do you do it? What is it that God has done in your heart that I could have as well, right? We want, we want to learn from others who are doing things well. Um, whatever it is, whether it's showing mercy or teaching, whether it's prayer. If you know someone in the church who who is a prayerful person speaking to them and saying, help me be more prayerful, right? This is just, this is just good discipleship here, right? That's what the disciples are doing. They see the model. They want to follow the model. They want to be better. So whatever it is that you see lacking in yourself, follow the example of the disciples here. Go to the Lord, um, thinking of others, asking God to help you be a greater blessing, to think of other ways that you can bless God's people. Go to Jesus with the same sense the disciples are going to Jesus with. I want to grow. I want to serve better. So that's just something I I initially noticed about the question. I don't want to dwell more on that. I want to go to Jesus' answer. Um, But just think about the place that that's coming from and ask yourself, am I ready to grow? Am I ready to develop uh, in whatever ways that I need to? But second, in Jesus' answer, we actually see the Lord's motivation. So, you know, they've just asked the question, why do you teach like this? And then Jesus gives an answer in verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So, uh, unlike other teachers, Jesus' goal, his primary goal is not to convey knowledge. Now, I promise I did not steal this from Dr. Fort's speech yesterday to the senior class. Um, but if you have a chance to listen to, uh, to the, the senior, um, the, the commencement speech that um, Dr. Fort gave yesterday, there is a lot of overlap here. And I was just sitting there going, he didn't get my notes, did he? I, I hope he didn't get my notes. Um, so Jesus' primary goal here is not to convey knowledge. Notice this about the reason he teaches in, in parables. If he wanted to just convey knowledge, he wouldn't do it in parables. He would just give them straight didactic lessons. He would just say what they need to memorize, and then they would memorize it. Now, Jesus does teach a lot. He does convey a lot. Um, he does that throughout his ministry. He, he teaches a lot in the Gospels. 
I mean, he was a teacher. He was a rabbi. This is what they do. But, and this is something that I've believed more and more as I've been a pastor. When I was in seminary, what did I think? I thought knowledge will cure the ails of all men, right? We, uh, everyone in the church will be able to pass a presbytery exam by the end of my ministry. That's my goal. And you, you sort of realize that no, what people need often, in fact, usually this is the case, what people need is not more information. I say that a lot. I've, I've, I keep saying it because the more I'm around God's people, the more I'm around people who know the Bible very well, the more convinced I am that, that the need of the average Christian who has been in the pul- who not in the pulpit, in the pew for, for years on end is not to memorize more things. It is very easy to default to that, especially if you have that that analytic mindset, that engineer's mind, that I'm going to fix it kind of a mind. It's easy to hear someone's troubles or their hurts and think what they need is better teaching. There's probably a problem with the teaching they got somewhere. Um, If only I could tell them the right thing, the light bulb would go off and, and I would fix them. I am that kind of personality. I'm constantly making the mistake of thinking, gee, the problem here is they need to know the truth. <clears throat> and I know that sounds, Dr. Fort said something like that yesterday, and he was like, please let me finish. Um, and I know you're probably thinking, you, you teach truth all the time, at least I hope you think that. You teach truth all the time. You, know, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, the, the, the default towards thinking truth will fix things is the way my brain is wired. It's how I think about my own troubles. But I think that is a very modern mindset, by the way. Many, many people in the world thought and still think uh, that man's greatest problem is a lack of knowledge. How many people do you still hear saying things like that? If only people knew better. If only we had better information. If only we had more knowledge. Uh, well, if, if, if those people weren't so ignorant, then they would know what is good. Or they would be happier if they weren't so ignorant, right? If only we knew more. And yet, think about the moment we live in. We are awash in information. We have so much information that we're actually creating artificial intelligences just to sift through the information that we keep producing. And now the artificial intelligences are going to be reading the information produced by the artificial intelligences so that they can read all of the information the other artificial intelligences have produced, which eventually, hopefully, connects back to something real that people said and put online, I guess. We have so much information just a few presses or a, a voice command on our phone, we can get nearly any information that we want. We can get the answer to almost any question that we have. And so you have platforms like ChatGPT. They allow us to ask a robot to write us a report, and in no time at all, the information can be generated for us. Knowledge. One of the biggest mistakes of our time is thinking that if only we had more knowledge we could have peace. If only we had more knowledge, we could solve the world's problems, as if knowledge is the problem. If only we knew more, things would be better. More knowledge, that's the answer. But is knowledge really our greatest need? The world we live in does believe that, or or at least seems to think that that's the case. They believe knowledge is the most important thing, and yet our biggest problems are not knowledge problems. Do you know why? 
Often it is the smartest people in the world who do the stupidest things. And they, and they didn't do that because they lacked information. They did it because of a heart issue. They did it because of a love issue. Right? They, they, they love themselves more than others. They wanted what they wanted and they disregarded other people. They put themselves first. It happens all the time. Smart people do bad things. A full brain is no replacement for an empty heart. An active mind is no replacement for a hard heart. If our heart is bad, but we know everything, right? Imagine that. Imagine you, you're somebody who just, somehow your mind didn't explode and you knew everything. <laughs> what would you do? That would be the greatest supervillain of all time, right? If you have a bad heart, but you know everything, that person is an incredible danger to society, right? Because when we love ourselves first, here's what we do with that good information. We dump it out, we suppress it, we ignore it, we sweep it under the rug, we excuse ourselves. Um, Paul uses this phrase, suppress the the truth, to describe this. He says we suppress the truth. We have the information, we have the knowledge, we know, in this case he's talking about God, he's saying we know God, what do we do with that great information? We put it in the toilet and we flush the handle over and over and over again and hope that it goes down, right? That's, that's what we do with good truth that we all have. And apart from the Spirit's work, that's what we'll do with it. So the Pharisees, are, they're witnessing Jesus' parables. They were the smartest. They were the best schooled. They were the most cultured men in the room They memorized large swaths of scripture without understanding them. This is the thing Jesus faults them for. They they don't understand it. They know it, but they don't understand it. They study the law. They study the prophets intricately, but they didn't know where they pointed. Jesus never faults them for their knowledge. He confronts them for what they do with that knowledge, right? They're so smart, and yet they are unwilling to understand or see. How do you get at that kind of a person? How do you get at somebody who is so smart, but their heart is bad? I'll tell you this. The answer, you do not do it with more teaching. You don't just pile more on the very thing that they will use, right? They will use it badly. So the answer is you don't get at that heart with more information. You know what they're going to do with that, right? You give them more information, they will put it in their information file, and they will say, well, now I have something good, I'll brag about knowing that later. Or I'll just become puffed up that I know this, right? That's sort of the reaction. See, information can become like something that they collect, something they gather together. Uh, I, I know this, I'm sure of this. People with the knowledge plus a proud heart are very excited to have more information that they can use as a tool or a weapon. Here's the deal. The thing that a smart person hates more than anything is when you actively press on them and you say, okay, you know this, but why is your heart so far from what you know? Why don't you love what you know? What good has your heartless knowledge done for you? Why don't you put what you know into practice? They hate that. (laughs) They hate that, I know. 
Now you're stepping on their toes in a way that they don't often handle very well. They didn't memorize how they're supposed to react when they get confronted. See, Jesus knows that his listeners need to have their toes stepped on and they need to have their own hearts and their loves confronted. You can do that a few ways, right? How do you get at that hard heart? We're still asking this question. How do you get at the hard heart of a person who knows everything? One way you can do that is, is to point at them and accuse, right? Be really direct. But people have defenses against that. But see, there are other ways as well to get at it. And what we see here is Jesus saying, I've got an approach here. It's the parable. So think about this. Jesus' goal is not to increase the knowledge of his listeners. His goal is to confront, right? His goal is to force self-examination. And his goal is really to unsettle people. And that's why he uses the parables. Parables do a few, a few things. One of the things they do is they invite us to examine the way we care about, uh, the, the way, it, the parable is inviting us to examine the things that we care about most in a way that is not direct, right? Because if you go directly at somebody's love, they're going to defend it. They're going to defend those things that they love. Um, and so what does the parable do? The parable forces you to engage instead of just collecting information. It forces you to respond and to think and to have almost a dialogue instead of just memorizing another thing. They make you work a little bit, right? The, the, if you read through the parables of Jesus, you, you, can't, you can't just passively receive them. If you do, then you, maybe you're just memorizing what the words are or something like that. But if you ever find yourself thinking, what is this parable about? I bet there's not one person in here who doesn't have a parable of Jesus they are confused about. Like there is probably at least one parable in the New Testament that Jesus tells where you go, I have no idea what Jesus is doing. The the parable of the shrewd manager, right? Like you just read that parable and you go, I I don't know. That's good. I I don't usually say it's good to not understand the Bible, but it is good that there are things in Jesus' teaching that we don't get. It means... That, that we don't get to just read the whole thing passively and just not think about what it's saying. All right, so the parables make you work. These are stories that they, they get the mind running. And often the thing that is most on our minds or maybe the thing that's within us that we're avoiding rises to the surface when we hear a parable. Now, it, it's not that the parables are Rorschach tests, right? The, par- the, the parables aren't just whatever you want to make of them or something like that. Jesus does have objective meaning in mind with the parables, right? He, he tells the disciples what the parable of the sower means. He tells us what the parable of the weeds means, right? He has one main meaning in mind, but that doesn't stop his listeners from having a very different interaction with the story that often says more about them than it does about Jesus. And that is because the plan here is not for them to know more. It is for them to be confronted about something in their hearts that they will defend if they see it being attacked. Let me just say that again. The plan here is not for them to know more. It is for them to be confronted about something in their hearts that they will defend if they see it being attacked. Think of the parable of the sower. Uh, Yes, it's meant to make someone think about the unbelief 
that they see in others. But it's also meant to make us think about the unbelief that's in us already. Right? Why is it I can hear a sermon and immediately forget about it? Um, why is it that I can read God's word and immediately start worrying about the rest of my life? Why is it right now I'm listening to Pastor Parker speak and I'm thinking about next week and all the stuff I have going on, right? It's a parable that's meant to make you think, not just about everybody else, but about me. What is wrong with me? See, the, the parable of the sower is a chance for us to be confronted. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a story that's given, so we'll memorize the four different types of soil. It's, it's about confronting us, right? And, and the parables all have this confronting quality, this confronting aspect to them. In each of our hearts, there is some kind of resistance that God's word is always confronting. There's something in there that's making friction so that when we hear the word of God, there is something about it that grates on us. There's something we love, hopefully, and then there's something that just grinds on us and we we think, why is that there? Um, We each have some sort of guardhouse at the front and by the Holy Spirit's power, God's word has to either smash it down, smash down the guardhouse, or, or sneak past the guardhouse. And this is what parables do. They sneak past the guard in the disguise of a story. Oh, look, it's an innocent little story. This is going to be fine. I, I can listen to this. I don't have to be prepared. You read the letters of Paul, what are you doing? You're arguing with him, right? I, I don't want this, right? But you hear Jesus tell a story, and you think, this is fine. And so... The idea of the parable is to sneak past the guardhouse to the inner control room of our heart and say, hey, who's really in charge here? And we think, hey, how'd you get past the guard, right? That's sort of what Jesus does. Now, when we are confronted, we respond in one of at least two ways. We either have the blinders fall off, you know, we're, we're brokenhearted and, and, and we repent, we, we see what happened. But there's another reaction too, which is that we, we harden and we resist what we hear. And of course, that's because if, if we don't love truth, what we hear then, all the truth in the world won't make a difference. right? It, it's just more information for the bad heart to use to its advantage. And that's the person Jesus is talking about here, the person who seeing does not see and hearing does not hear nor do they understand. In other words, Jesus is saying there are hard hearts in this crowd and they do not need more information. Someone like that, Jesus says, shouldn't hear and shouldn't understand because if they did, whatever they understood would just become another arrow in their quiver of knowledge and self-righteousness that they would use against against God or against others. If you're exposed to the word of God and you feel nothing and you do nothing and you understand nothing, that is a matter of the heart and it's a matter of your own hardness. Knowledge without a heart of love is just a weapon to be yielded, right? But God wants a broken heart. If you want knowledge without love, Jesus says he doesn't want you to understand, if, if the Bible is just something that you plan on using to dominate another person, he doesn't want you to understand. He wants it to go right past you. It is on purpose that you don't get it. The only people, Jesus says, who are, are meant to actually know the secrets of the kingdom 
According to verse 11, is those to whom it's been given. So the point here is not that if you hear the parable or the word of God in general and you're touched by it, then you're superior or you're better. That is not the point. Because the point is that the reason why you understand is something prior that has nothing to do with you. It's been given for you to understand. So the point is actually that if you hear the God's word and, and you believe it and you trust in Jesus, God has given that to you. It is a gift. God has been gracious to you. And so really, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of something that should be puffing you up. It's something that should be penetrating your heart. And Jesus says that if it does that, that understanding is a gift. You thank him for it. You thank him for it. You don't thank somebody for something they didn't give you. You don't thank somebody for something that you already had. You thank God because he gave you a glimpse because he helped you understand yourself and because he gave you a broken heart. And he actually uses the word of God and he uses the knowledge of of God to do that. But there is a need here for us to confront the fact that what we desperately, centrally, primarily need is not another piece of information to memorize. And this leads right into the third point this morning, which is the Christian's privilege. Right, so... No sooner has Jesus told his disciples that their understanding of God's word and the parables is is a gift than he reminds them that what they are seeing and understanding is a gift. What they're seeing and experiencing right now is a remarkable privilege. This is one of my favorite things Jesus ever said in verse 16. Listen to this again. It's so so beautiful. It's like Jesus is... You ever go and do something amazing and you're so not in the moment that you just keep thinking about the next thing that you're going to go do? Uh, We visited the Grand Canyon a few years ago. When I I first was dating Aaron, uh, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken, we we went to the Grand Canyon before we got married, but my timeline's all messed up because I'm old now. Um, But it was about 20 years ago. It It was about two decades ago. And we went to the Grand Canyon, and uh, I just remember standing at the Grand Canyon and looking out and being delighted by the view, thinking, I've never seen something so grand, right? I know they name it after that, and it's a little cheesy to say it's grand, but wow. At the very same time, I was thinking, I wonder what else we're doing later today. I wonder, there was this, there was this Mexican restaurant, they kept talking about Chevy's. I wonder if we're going to go to Chevy's later. They make homemade, they make homemade flour tortillas there. Oh, that's going to be great. Oh, I think it's Phoenix. We've got to swim, you know. And so I am at the Grand Canyon, and I am also not at the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Right? I'm very much not living in the moment. And I, I feel like Jesus is really trying to hit the disciples with this, this realization. Brothers, you are standing at the Grand Canyon right now. Do not be at Chevy's later, right? Don't be thinking about swimming. Think about what's going on right now. Jesus is is putting them in the moment. Look at this, what he does in verse 16. He says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, I, I say this is one of my favorite things Jesus ever said. 
When you and I read the Old Testament in particular, we are reading about the life and experience of God's people in a time where they were living in anticipation of Jesus and the cross, right? Everything before the book of Matthew in the New Testament is all people who, are, who have to look ahead and hope to one who hasn't come yet for them, right? Um, Genesis 3.15 God says a snake crusher is going to come, right? They're getting, they're getting the gospel if they can see it there. Um, they, they knew that Abraham would have children as numberless, numer- numberless as the stars. The faithful among them trusted in the coming Savior. Paul, Paul actually says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Um, they knew that while Moses was a great prophet, there was going to be a greater prophet coming one day. They knew that while David was a great king, they knew there was another king who was going to be perfect and the forever king of God's people sitting on David's throne. Um, they knew that one day the appointed one, the Messiah, would come and save God's people from their sins and bear their sin upon himself. Um, if they read the prophecy of Isaiah, then they knew there was a suffering servant who would come and that by his stripes they would be healed. Um, you even get closer to the time of Jesus. In, in Luke chapter 2, you have Simeon, right? Simeon. Uh, Luke tells us this, this man of righteousness was devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Do Do you remember what Simeon did when he saw little baby Jesus? Luke tells us that he took him in his arms and blessed God, and he said something, and you just hear the longing in these words. Listen to this. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. We hear this and we think of Christmas, right? This is the fulfillment of this man's whole life of longing. He's at the Grand Canyon. He's holding him, right? Look at the relief in this man's words, right? The joy in beholding the promise kept. There's also a prophetess named Anna. She has the same thing. She rejoices. She's been looking forward to Jesus. So this is, just so you know, like the whole Old Testament is a story of people waiting to see this thing that the disciples have, right? These were people within Israel who, who understood the promise and they kept waiting for it and they yearned for it. They yearned for his miracles. They would have died to hear his voice. They would have died to hear this parable, right? They would have died to hear the parable of the soil. They would have loved to hear his teaching. Um, John Chrysostom, got to go to John Chrysostom as much as possible. He says something really insightful here. He says, Jesus, in this, in this parable, or in this explanation of the parables, Jesus is connecting his ministry with the promises of the Old Testament. And he does it really explicitly. Listen to how Chrysostom says this. He says, he says do you see once again how Christ connects the old dispensation with the new? signifying that those of old not only knew the things to come, but also greatly desired them. But had they pertained to some strange and opposing God, they never would have desired them. Don't miss this point. His point is, there is a smooth through line from the Old Testament to Jesus' ministry. 
in the new, and that line is the line of promise. Jesus is the same God as the Old Testament God, keeping his promises. He's also saying the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the new, right? He is the same yesterday and today and forever, right? This work is like a seamless garment. What does Jesus say in John 8? Abraham desired to see my day. He saw it and rejoiced, right? Not just Simeon, not just Anna, not just Abraham, not just David, not just Moses, not just Adam and Eve. All of God's people who heard God's promise latched onto it. What does Jesus say again? He says, they longed to see what you see. They longed to see it. So Jesus is making one basic point, but he's making up a whole, making up, opening up a whole other point that should be cause for rejoicing, right? His main point is that he talks to his, that as he talks to his disciples, he wants them to see what a privilege they have. The saints of old had the same information. They knew the Savior was coming. They didn't just collect that information. They actually loved what they heard and they rejoiced. He says that. That's the word he uses, right? Not just knowledge, but the heart as well. They were united to Christ, not by knowledge, but by faith, right? Jesus is saying this, right? Don't just know the truth, love the truth. A privilege to hear his teaching. A privilege to have it given them to understand his teaching. A privilege to be alive and to see all of this. It is a privilege because it is an ode. It's a privilege because it's a gift. It's a privilege because all of, of all of the people who wished that it could have been them. And you might find yourself at this moment thinking, ah, I'm very jealous I wish I was like the disciples. I wish I saw what they saw, right? But Christian, do you consider the privilege that we have from where we are in redemptive history? Here we are in 2023 and you think, oh, I'm worse off than the disciples. Wrong. It is easy for us to think that we really missed out. We've come so late in redemptive history. We missed the flood. We missed the miracles. We missed the resurrection. We aren't there in the time of the apostles. Maybe you wish that, but... Think about this. The saints of the Old Testament would have given anything to live this side of the cross. They would have given anything to have the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus written down carefully so that we could study it word for word and know what he was like, know what he taught, know what he said, know what he did. They would have given anything his teachings. They would have given anything to have one parable of Jesus's to read. Could you imagine, could you imagine King David being told, another king's going to sit on your throne and he's going to be the forever king of Israel. And you could imagine David going, I want to know who it is. I want to know what he says. I want to know what he does. You don't get it. They would have given anything to stop living in the types and shadows of the law. They would have given anything to sit and listen to a sermon preaching the name of the Savior and opening his word and teaching it, teaching it aloud. They would have given anything. They longed for it. They are so jealous of what you get to do right now. They would have given anything to have the gift of the Holy Spirit helping them, carrying them, working in them, poured out in their hearts in the way that it is now in the New Testament. They longed for it. And God did not give them their longing, not in the way he does now. 
Instead, they died in their longing. Instead, they lived by faith. They trusted that God would bring him at just the right time, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem a people who were given to him by the Father. Christian, will you hear Jesus today? Our position has only become greater and more beautiful than it was even for the disciples. We are better off than they were. Not only do we know of Jesus' work in redeeming a people for himself, but we know we've seen in action Jesus' love in redeeming people from all over the world in a way that those disciples only hoped for. We, we live in a time of watching God's word go out and conquer the world in lands where we aren't even at. From where we are, we bear witness to epochs and ages of the church as God has been faithful to revive the hearts of people and draw men and women and boys and girls to himself. Think about what we've seen even since the end of the New Testament. We have seen the movements, the risings and fallings of empires and civilizations, the greatest emperors and kings on this earth, all the while Christ and his people have perished and survived and spread the message. We've seen the endurance and preservation of God's people through floods and fires and persecutions and famines. We have seen horrible forces rise up against the church and persecuted nearly to the point of despair. And we've seen their tormentors even turn back and find repentance in the Lord. We have seen hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh We have seen the crushed in heart lifted up. We've seen men and women of whom the world was not worthy, mocked and flogged and stoned and sawn and chained and imprisoned and beheaded, all the while saying, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing will separate us from from his love, not life, nor death, nor rulers, nor anything in this world. We have seen men and women living for a better city, a greater city, a city where the light never dims and the night never comes, where tears don't fall. Men and women who set their eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith, who for the joy set before them endured the cross, despised the shame, and was raised up. Ages upon ages have passed since Christ came. And as they have passed, we have seen all of this. This great cloud of witnesses stretching out before us. All of it could scarcely have been imagined by Abraham or Moses or David or Simeon or Anna. What a privilege. And it's ours. Do you you thank him for where we are? For the moment you live in? Do you thank him that we have this gift? Do, do you see all of, this, all of these kept promises stretching out behind us? Do you see them as a gift? Do not envy the Old Testament saints. Don't even envy the disciples. See the privilege that you enjoy. Bask in it. And thank the Lord for it. Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples even more than he says it to us, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we praise you for your great deeds among us. We give you glory for saving a people for yourself 
from Egypt. We give you glory for lifting up judges and prophets and kings to provide for your people. But now we live in the time of Christ and we praise you for the Savior who lived among us, suffered for us, died for us, and rose for us. We praise you that we get to be witnesses to your glorious work. We also praise you that in hearing your word, we do see and we do understand. And we ask on behalf of all those who cannot see and cannot hear what your, that your spirit would cause the scales to fall from their eyes and that they would hear and believe to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.